I'm so happy to be back with you again. It's such a blessing to be able to continue to be with you all in worship. I, I look forward to it deeply every time that it's coming up. So again, thank you for having me. And I'm going to talk about joy today. I was here about a month ago, and I told you I'd been planning to talk to you about joy, and the world came up, and I still have that on my heart. And want to speak to you about it today. And before I dig into what I brought with me, I wanted to mark a few moments of joy that have happened in this space since I've been sitting here. Um, first of all, just hearing your joys and concerns together as a community um, is just bringing joy and the laughter together. Um, hearing you mention Doyle and Meredith. I worked for Doyle and Meredith when they opened the Naughty Knitter like almost 15, I mean over 15 years ago. Um, and I haven't seen them since I've been here because they haven't been here, but anyway. My heart swells when I hear their names. Um, and then that story, y'all. I, I feel like I need to get a copy for my four-year-old. I could hear her giggling in the back of my head like the whole time you were reading it. Um, so just smiles and how wonderful. Um, so I'm gonna start off talking to you about weddings, which is another place where I um, tend to find these moments of sparked joy. I always cry at weddings. It doesn't matter how close I am with the couple, with whoever is getting married. I could be at the wedding of someone I've never met, like a cousin of my wife's, right, that like she was brought to the wedding and now I'm here, but I'm still going to find a moment where I'm going to burst into tears. Um, it's when I catch that side of joy on someone's face or hear that catch of emotion in their voice when they recite a vow and like in that moment I'm toast. And the joy in those moments is contagious to me. I feel so happy for the person who is experiencing this profound moment and so simultaneously feeling lucky to have been chosen to be a witness to the ritual. And honestly, sometimes it does annoy me though, like how I have no control over these moments, like these breakthroughs of emotion. I can't control them at all. It's like this small unavoidable takeover of my spirit. The love and joy in the room is contagious and there's simply nothing I can do about it. But in the end, of course, I'm thankful for them. And I'm thankful for my own ability to experience them. Without this love-filled fuel, my life would be a much greater place. And in truth, I do find myself looking for these little moments where my spirit is captured all the time. This past Friday afternoon, just a couple of days ago, I went to a wedding in my very own backyard. It was the tiniest wedding ever, with just an officiant, my wife and two children as the only wedding guests, and the couple, who after a decade of partnership had decided to go through this ritual of commitment together. The couple getting married, or who are now married, are family to us. I met them both about 12 years ago. Um, I stage managed a concert production of Les Miserables at a rock venue in Nashville. It was wild. Um, Larissa played Eponine, one of the central characters, and was the music director. And Dan had played Enjolras, the passionate leader of the band of revolutionaries in the story. And during the frenzies of rehearsals and performances that we went through getting that ragtag show together, Dan and Larissa connected with each other behind the scenes, feeling inexplicably drawn to one another. They fell in love and into a deep partnership. And for the past 10 years, they have been musical and creative partners as well as life partners. And the synthesis and closeness between them has always been a joy to see. And back when we were putting together Les Mis, Dan and I actually also became really close friends. So it was because of the, our closeness that I became close with Larissa. She's like a ray of light in this world. One of those love-filled people who doesn't have an ounce of malice in her spirit, like even when she wants to, like she can't find it. 
She's bubbly and passionate and kind. She sings like a Disney princess. Um, she's just a person who radiates love. And Dan is the most generous person I've ever met. He thinks of those who are beloved to him always and has a knack for surprising you with gifts and gestures of love that leave you feeling humbled all the time. When my wife and I were turning our plans over and over in our mind about how we were going to create a family, we were sharing with our closest friends that we thought that the person that would be our donor was someone that we wanted to know. But we didn't know who that would be. And Dan just came to us with a vulnerable and open heart and asked if he could do this for us. So I get chills even now remembering it because I didn't see it coming. But it was in that incredible moment that he went from friend to family. And as we now refer to him, he's the person who helped us make our kids. And we've created two beautiful children as an extended family. Ashley and I as the parents, and Dan and Larissa as this loving extension of our family and an integral part of our lives. So that small connection we made when I signed up to do a show at Mercy Lounge with a bunch of musicians who had no idea what to do with theater, then I yelled around yelling, thank you, five, and they were like, what's wrong with you? Like, I don't know what's going on. Like that moment, that network brought us all the way to this moment in my backyard on Friday where my daughters played in the flower petals and picked their noses while two of our best <laughs> friends got married. So to watch them say our vows, it's a moment I'll never forget. And I wish I could have bottled up that joy and share it with everyone that I see. It was this oasis of connection and love in a time where our society is so fraught with fear and anger. And it was another nexus of joy that I was so happy to be a part of. And that memory will help fuel me in my darkest moments. How beautiful it was to witness. What an example of how the world could and should be. So as I mentioned the last time I was here, I hinted at this topic that had been on my heart for quite some time. That was the topic of joy, but particularly this type of kindling for joy that comes when you find yourself delighting in the joy of others. Those of you who were here with me the last time heard me tell another story about experiencing overwhelming joy as I watched my daughter filled with delight at Disney World and how watching her light up lit up my spirit in a way that I wanted to learn how to replicate more and more and more. I've continued to talk about this idea. I've continued to think about it a lot more, about this special and unusually, unusually big experience of joy that comes from seeing others happy and how I wanted more of that in my life. More of it for me, more of it for those I love, more of it in my community. I'm still thinking about what a world would look like if our overwhelming reaction to others' joy was one of delight and happiness instead of jealousy, resentment, or even the suspicion that comes up so much more often. I'm still thinking about joy-filled moments and intentional pleasure in our justice movements and how that joy can work to not only fuel us to do the work, but to be part of the design of this new world that we're building. So how do we do this? How do we, one, cultivate more joy, and two, share it with others, like the precious resource that it is? So at the same time that I was initially turning these questions over in my mind and discerning that sweet Disney World experience with my daughter, I was taking a course as part of my seminary work on Buddhist traditions. 
where I was reminded that, of course, I was not the first person to ask this question about propagating joy. Many, many had asked this question before me. And I also learned of practices that existed already around this. And a beautiful example of that is a Buddhist concept called mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A. Mudita is the word. Or a sympathetic joy practice. Mudita is a Sanskrit and Pali word that translates into joy, but more specifically, sympathetic joy, or the delight we feel in other people's joy. In Buddhism, Mudita is one of the divine abodes, or virtues that you should cultivate in order to live with an open heart. I find it fascinating, first of all, that we don't have a word that directly translates into this word, but I also find it extremely exciting to imagine what it could be like if more and more people centered this virtue in their lives. I'm interested in this practice personally very much because while the leap from experiencing my daughter's joy to having my own overwhelming sense of happiness was instant and without effort, this is not my common reaction to seeing other people's happy, other people happy, excuse me. More often, I hear or see of someone else's happiness and I think, good for them, or I'm so happy for them but in a much more subdued way. They're positive reactions and they're fine because I'm not caught up in jealousy or skepticism as I have been plenty of other times in the past, but I'm still fairly detached from that happiness in those moments. I may be warmed by their joy, but I'm not engaged with it. In his book, Love and Rage, author, activist, and Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Lama Rod Owens, introduces us to this practice of sympathetic joy in a fairly accessible way. He says that if we first start by recognizing our own joy and wishing it could spread, that we've made a beginning. We imagine ourselves as a being that can share joy with others. Our joy is not something that we own or even that we earn. Rather, it's an energy that can be shared. So when we recognize our own moments of joy, we don't, simply, we don't simply acknowledge them with gratitude and then move on. On top of that gratitude, we pause and we imagine giving that experience of joy away to others, especially those who could really use that energy. Owen says that the happiness you can offer to others can come from any source, from something as simple as smelling a sweet smelling flower, to experiencing physical pleasure, to experiencing a hard-won moment of success. Cultivating this practice of giving away joy can help us to stop seeing our joy as property, or again, as something we've earned or own. We can see it as a shared exchange, as a much-needed resource in this world. This means that we can now take a second step in our practice and that's to begin opening ourselves up to the experience of experiencing, is that how it works? Experience, experiencing, other people's joy. This work of opening our minds to the energy of others when we see them happy is, to quote Owens, an edgy practice. He explains this by saying, because we are called to take part in the happiness of people who receive things that we may believe should be ours or believe that the person experiencing that happiness doesn't deserve it. It makes it edgy. So to get around this, he suggests that we take the time to imagine the feeling of joy that that person is experiencing and the hard work they must have gone through to achieve that experience. It's fairly simple. It's again about pausing, right? In time and with practice, 
we may, may feel less jealousy of others and start defaulting to a place where joy is shared more freely and mudita comes more naturally. Another, even more simple practice I've learned to help expand this virtue in my life is a simple phrase that I learned in that Buddhist traditions course. When you hear good news from someone, instead of going to that default answer of, I'm happy for you, or congratulations, and again, those answers are fine. They do not do any harm whatsoever. I've experienced a shift in myself when I meet those moments with a new phrase, which is, may your joy continue. May your joy continue. I'll give you an example of this moment in practice in my life. So as many of you know, I'm in seminary, and I'm part-time in seminary, like one class a semester, like the long track, because I've got small children and a full-time job. Blah, blah, blah. Around the same time that I discovered Unitarian Universalism, another friend that I met at church had joined the church at the same time. And I discerned and heard the call to ministry within like six months. I first heard this person articulate it maybe two or three years later. Who knows when they first started feeling it as well. This person is brilliant and compassionate and kind and happens to be single and doesn't have children and is 10 years younger than me. And so a year before I started seminary, they started seminary. And in the fall, they graduated from Harvard. And I'm so happy for them. <laughs> so happy for them. I really am. Um, but when the graduation happened, they put this glorious post up on Facebook of all these pictures of their graduation, and it was their family in town and their mentor, who was also my beloved mentor, who had helped them throughout the process, and um, awards they had won, an announcement of an internship at this wonderful, thriving congregation um, here in the United States. Um, they will likely be, and good for our, uh, our movement and tradition, ordained probably in a year and a half or so, right? They're really, really close. And I saw that post and I was so happy for them and I was so jealous. It hurt. It's a long way away for me. It just is. It's part of my formation is getting good with that. And um, I read the post and I clicked the heart because I was very happy and then I scrolled down to write congratulations and I stopped and I remembered this moment and I wrote, I'm so happy for you. May your joy continue. And I meant that. All these pictures, they're just beaming, like so happy. And I scrolled on. A couple days later, someone else I know, you know commented on that post, so it popped it back up in my feed. And I looked at the post, and I saw my comment. And I saw a bunch of other people had put a heart on my heart, on my comment, that may your joy continue. And so I imagined this like network, like this, these threads going out where my friend had shared their joy and I had wished and expressed for that joy to continue. It could have been anyone else that did that, but I did that. And then all these other people said, oh yes, that. May your joy continue. And they took that with them. And I've held that moment with me since then as this example of the practice of switching my reaction to joy into something different, into an energy that can be shared and propelled into the world with other people. So if I allow myself to imagine a world where joy is shared that way, where it's a shared energy, and our default response to seeing it is one of happiness and not jealousy, or happiness and jealousy, it's hard for me not to imagine a world that's just full of more abundance in general. Part of our work as Unitarian Universalists and as justice seekers on this planet is to consistently imagine new futures and work to build them. Often this work is full of struggle and frustration, and the future that we're looking towards, while desirable, 
is described more in these black and white descriptors of equality or justice for all people in the earth. We're talking about the work ahead, and we talk about it as that, as work. We easily and understandably often leave out of our minds and our vision the joy that comes with not just doing the work, but the joy that will exist when these fights have been won. Writer and activist Tony Cade Bambara said, it is our duty to make revolution irresistible. As we work to dismantle oppressive systems both in society and within ourselves, we can easily become exhausted. But with these words, Bambara teaches us that the fuel we need to prepare ourselves forward exists in finding a desire for that future we are building that doesn't just include justice, it also includes joy. In her book, Pleasure Activism, writer and facilitator Adrian Marie Brown, who I feel like I bring up every third time I talk to you, um, put together a manual and guide for cultivating more pleasure and embodied joy in our own lives. And she calls us to incorporate that same joy into our justice work. She asks us these questions. How would we organize and move our communities if we shifted the focus to what we long for and love rather than to what we are negatively reacting to. So I'll ask that one again. How would we organize and move our communities if we shifted the focus to what we long for and love instead of what we are negatively reacting to? And other questions she asks. Is it possible for justice and pleasure to feel the same way in our collective body? And could we make justice and liberation the most pleasurable collective experiences we have? I'm instantly excited by these questions, and I am fueled by them. I find that if I'm entering justice work with those questions in mind, more of me is welcome in the work, and my vision of the outcome becomes fuller, richer, and worth fighting for even more. Both Bambara and Brown teach us to say yes to ourselves and to a future that includes our whole selves. Owens and other Buddhist teachers teach us to say yes to our own joy and the joy of others as a liberating practice. My exploration of this topic and my sharing it with you comes in a time when we are all facing a mountain of challenges that exist in our own day-to-day -day lives. From the ongoing pandemic to inflation to navigating the fear that comes with living in a world riddled with violence. On top of these looming threats to democracy and the actual active stripping of human rights in this country, alongside raging wars around the world, I will stop. So I'm not suggesting that cultivating and sharing joy is the only tool we need, but I am suggesting that it is one that we in fact need. In these times when life is hard and weary and often scary, I encourage all of us to hang on to our joy and allow ourselves happiness when we can find it. And I pray that we allow ourselves not only to experience the joy, but to see it just as the hardships we face as a means of highlighting our connectedness to one another and a motivator to continue to press forward, to continue building a new way. Bell Hooks says in her book on love, she explains what it means to live with a love ethic. And in my understanding, an ethic of love and an ethic of joy would stand hand in hand, the words almost interchangeable in my own mind. Hooks said, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. 
The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. When we choose to love, we choose to move against fear, against alienation and separation. The choice to love is a choice to connect, to find ourselves in each other. May your love continue. May your joy continue. May it be so.